Yeah. Heard heard. We all heard it, but you know what? Coming from you, it was golden. You know what, though? Here's the, here's the yeah. thing. You can prepare. Yeah. You can practice. Yeah. And you, can, and you can do your very best. Yeah. And sometimes you hit a bone note. They're, get, they're getting ready to find that out for sure in just a minute. It's okay to hit a bone note. Yeah. It is. Amen. It's okay. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. Don't beat yourself up if you have a bad note for heaven's sake. It's just a bad note. Okay? Get on yeah, yeah. You know, Harry and I used to do this stuff all the time. Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. <laughs> it's good to share a microphone with Harry again, my friend. So it's good. Open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 to begin with. Revelation 5, 1 through 8. If you're using a pew Bible, you're going to find that on page 1030 and 1031. I want to talk to you today about the prayer life, the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. Where do your prayers go when you have prayed, when you have uh, poured your heart out to God? Where does it go? We want to see that today. We're going to begin here looking at the throne of God in heaven. This is what the Word of the Lord says. It says, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that our prayers are heard, and we thank you that our prayers are heard in heaven, in your very throne room. We thank you that we have this great and amazing privilege of being able to come into your presence, weak though we are, fallen though we are, yet redeemed by the blood of Jesus, by your grace. We thank you that you are a God who is listening And we thank you that you're a God who is speaking. Help us as we study today the prayer life of the saints. We'll thank you for it. Speak to us or nobody's going to get anything. So speak to us and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. George Mueller was born in 1805. He was a Christian evangelist and he was a man who ran an orphan house in Bristol, England. Mueller was a man who had not started life as a believer in Jesus Christ. 
Although his father, as uh, Mueller was growing up in Germany, had a great vision for Mueller. He wanted Mueller to become a pastor. And the reason he wanted Mueller to become a pastor was because pastors made a good living. They were paid by the state. And Mueller's father wanted a good retirement uh, system. And so his plan was for his father to become a pastor so that Mueller could support the dad in his old age. Problem with that was George Mueller did not believe in Jesus. And he wasted away his education until finally another friend in, in school invited him to come to a home Bible study. Probably like the beginning of Benjamin House Church. A little group of people who just got together to study the Bible. And it was in that home Bible study that George Mueller came face to face with Jesus Christ and was converted and was saved. Mueller had a passion to be a missionary to the Jewish people. And so he found out that there was a mission board in London, England that would support him to do that. So he went from Germany to London. And when he got there, he found that it wasn't going to work out for him to be able to do that. So he ended up pastoring a small church in rural England and then finally moved to the great city of Bristol. And Mueller had a peculiarity about him for a pastor. You know, isn't it ironic that though Mueller's dad wanted him to go into the pastorate so he could make a good living, Mueller refused to take a salary from his churches. He said, I'm not going to live that way. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to get on my knees and pray and ask God to provide for my needs. Congregation, if you'd like to help, there'll be a box at the back of the church, very similar to what we do here. And whatever comes in in the box is what me and my family are going to live off of. And George Mueller lived by faith. He didn't have a lot of money. But as he looked at the streets of Bristol, England, he found what we found in those photos today that you brought with us. Children on the streets with no parents, ill cared for, nobody to take care of them. And George Mueller's heart went out to those children just as our hearts have gone out to the kids of Uganda today. And George Mueller said, in Jesus' name, something has got to be done about this. We cannot let this go on. And so Mueller said to the Lord, if you'll provide for me, I'll start an orphan house to take care of the kids. Only here's the deal. I'm going to do it the same way my wife and my family and I are taken care of. I'll get on my knees and pray, and whatever you bring me is what I'll use to do it with. Isn't that a wonderful system? Would you and I pick that way to do it? That's a kind of a, you know, a lot of us would scratch our heads and say, now look, George, look, George, I know that you think that God's going to do it that way, but man, you're talking about taking care of orphans here. That can't possibly work. Charles Dickens, you remember Charles Dickens, the guy who wrote uh, A Christmas Carol and all those uh, uh, social commentary books of Victorian England? He came to Mueller's Orphan House to see how it was working out because he heard that the children were starving. Mueller handed him the key to the place and said, open any door you want and look anywhere you want. And Dickens walked over that place and found out that there wasn't anybody starving, that the kids were clothed, that they were well-fed, that they were being well-educated, and that God was taking care of those children. As a matter of fact, this is what God did in answer to the prayers of George Mueller. In his lifetime, he cared for 10,024 orphans. 
He provided an educational opportunity for the orphans to the point that he was even accused by some of raising the poor above their natural station in British life. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be accused of? If people could accuse us of raising the poor to above their natural station in life. He not only took care of 10,000 orphans by prayer, he established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 children, many of whom were orphans. Mueller did all of this without asking a soul for money. Though he himself had no funds to speak of, Mueller lived by faith on whatever God happened to bring him, and his orphan houses ran the same way. He simply prayed and and taught those working with him to pray, asking God alone to supply the needs of the orphans. Never once did God let him down. No orphan ever went hungry, ill-clothed, or poorly educated. And Mueller's orphan houses are still in existence today, operating on exactly the same basis. They are operated by prayer. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could have a prayer life like George Mueller? It would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But let's get real. We live in a different world than George Mueller, don't we? We seem to live in a different world than George Mueller. I don't know what it's like for you, but there are days when I have been in prayer and it seems as if my prayers have simply rattled off the walls and bounced off the ceiling. I don't know where they went. Now, come on. Haven't you had that experience? Turn to your neighbor and say, "Uh uh-huh, that's right. All right, there you go. Because, you know, this, is, this kind of prayer life must just be something that's just special for people like George Mueller, right? Do you ever wonder where your prayers go? Where did my prayers go when I pray? When I pray for the orphans in Uganda, or, or I pray for the, the orphans that we help in Mexico, or the orphans that we help sponsor in, uh, in Korea, where do those prayers go? Do they go anywhere? Is it, just, is it just around me? Let me tell you where your prayers go. And I want to show you where your prayers go by giving you a lesson from four pieces of furniture. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Now, the four pieces of furniture that I've got in mind, you actually find in Exodus chapter 37. And the passage is too long for me to be able to read it to you today. But I want you to know I'm not making this stuff up, and you can, uh, you can read this for yourself when you get home, Exodus 37. There are four pieces of golden furniture that God told Moses to make and to put into the, into the tabernacle where the people would worship the Lord. They're in the wilderness, and God says, Now, Moses, I want you to get somebody. I've, I've specially equipped a fellow by the name of Bezalel. I've put my spirit in him, and he's going to have my spirit's going to work through his hands. Do you know the Holy Spirit can work through your hands? Not, it's, not just, it's not just the spiritual things that the Holy Spirit can do. It's also the practical things that are needed for the spiritual things. And so God had prepared this man and had said, he's going to be your furniture maker. He was the divine furniture maker. Wouldn't that be a great job to have? So he's told to make four pieces of furniture. And the pieces of furniture that he's told to make are, he said, I want you to make the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant basically was kind of a rectangular box. It wasn't very big. It was probably less than a yard in width, 
uh, probably about this tall, uh, maybe about this wide, and it was a box. It was made out of wood, acacia wood. And uh, then after it was made out of wood, uh, he was to take gold uh, leaf and he was to hammer it onto the box. The box was to be covered in gold. On top of the box was a solid gold cover that went on top of it, that sat on top of it. And integral to that top were two uh, uh, statues, if you will, of angels, of cherubim that were over top of it. And uh, the, the center of this, the, between the angels, the angels are looking down at this cover, and that was called the mercy seat. The high priest would go in once a year uh, to the particular location in the tabernacle where the, the box was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, scatter blood on it, symbolizing the forgiveness of the people's sins. That was the Ark of the Covenant. That's one piece of furniture. Second piece of furniture that he was told to make was a golden lampstand. He was to take, a, I think it was about 70 pounds of gold, and he was to hammer it into what we know today as a menorah. How many of you have seen a Jewish menorah? You know, seven lamps, right? It's a, it looks like a candlestick, only it's got seven different lamps on it. That was the menorah. That was the second piece of gold furniture that was to be made. The third piece of gold furniture that was to be made was a table. He was to make a table, again, not very long, maybe this long, maybe this wide, maybe this high, with poles on it for carrying. And uh, that was to be plated in gold also, and they were to put bread on that, unleavened bread, uh, matzahs, uh, laid on the top of the thing, were to be stacked on top of this. These were three of the golden pieces of furniture. Now, the interesting thing about those three pieces of furniture is where they were positioned in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically uh, a portable worship center, if you want to. Uh, This place would not be very portable. Can I get an amen? But this was a portable worship center, and it was composed of the first room was called the holy place, and it was kind of a rectangular room. And then on the back side of that was the Holy of Holies, and it was a square room. It was actually a cube. It was as tall as it was wide as it was deep. And these two rooms were separated by a curtain. There was a curtain that hung to separate these two rooms, these two parts of the tabernacle. And the curtain is very interesting. Are you with me? You're not going to sleep, are you? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm awake. Okay. Now, the curtain was made out of red yarn, blue yarn, and purple yarn. It was woven together. I have in my mind that this thing must have looked like a beautiful Florida sunset. Don't you, didn't you come to Florida for the sunsets? I mean, really, why are you here in the wintertime? It's got to be for the sunrises and the, and the sunsets. It certainly isn't for the mountains, right? <laughs> it must have looked like a beautiful sunrise or a sunset with that weaving of these colors in this curtain. And then embroidered on the curtain were figures of angels, cherubim, if you will, that were, that were there. Here it is again that was embroidered onto this, this curtain that hung between these two rooms in the tabernacle. Now, the first piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, was to go behind that curtain in the smaller room, in the room that's called the Holy of Holies, sit right in the middle of it. The second piece of furniture, the golden lampstand, was to go in the room that was on this side of the curtain. It was to be set on the south side. Uh, The tabernacle would always face to the east, and so on the south wall, against the south wall, was the lampstand here to give light. And then on the north side was the other piece of furniture, 
was over here on the north side, the table of showbread would be sitting right here against this wall so that when you walked in, you would have these three pieces of furniture. Two of them you could see. You could see the lampstand. You could see the table of showbread. Behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. There are these three pieces of furniture. You say, Andy McQuaid, why are you telling me about furniture? What in the world has this got to do with anything? Let me tell you something. This is a beautiful picture of the reality of the Trinity. Because God the Father is in heaven, separated by the heavens, the place where the angels are. He's behind the curtain. God the Holy Spirit, who illuminates us, is on this side working in our world. Jesus Christ, who is the table of showbread. Remember how Jesus said, I am the bread of life? He's on that table. He's represented by that table. Do you know that when they took these uh, articles of, uh, of furniture to transport them, they put blue cloths over all three of them except for the, for the table of showbread, which also got a red cloth. Why do you think it got a red cloth? It's at least significant. It's at least suggestive of the blood of Jesus Christ. So what you have here is a picture of the Trinity. God in his heaven, Jesus and the Holy Spirit working with us on our side of the phys- in the physical universe. But there's one more piece of furniture we haven't talked about. Did you notice that there's four pieces? There's one more piece. It was an altar. It was a little altar. It didn't stand very tall. It was probably about, about that tall. It was uh, square and uh, just uh, overlaid with gold like the other pieces. And that was the altar of incense. Now, where do you think that went? Who wants to guess? Now, I'm going I'm to give you a warning. I preached this message yesterday at the Palms. And somebody immediately told me the right answer. So I'm going to be highly disappointed if you guys can't do better than people that are in a nursing home. Okay? So where do you think that altar was positioned in the tabernacle? Somebody tell me. In front of the curtain. And in the center, right in the middle between the three that represent the Trinity. And you say, why is that important? It's important because the altar of incense represents the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. Do you remember how we read that in Revelation? That the incense comes up to God? Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. That our prayers ascend into the presence of God. It's very interesting. When you study this matter of the altar of incense, it's very interesting where it's positioned in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Because if you read your Bible with care, you'll find that it's positioned in two different places. Because in the Old Testament, it's on this side of the curtain. But when you read in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews makes a move with it. He takes it inside the curtain. Do you know why he takes it inside the curtain? Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the curtain was torn. And there's no barrier anymore between us and God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Where do your prayers go when you pray? Let me tell you where your prayers go. They go right into the presence of the living God. They go right into the presence of the one who created you. And and how does he receive them? What is it like for him to get these prayers? Let me tell you what it's like. It's like a sweet aroma. It is like a, a golden fragrance to him. Do you know why God wants us to pray? He wants us to pray for the same reason that any parent 
wants a loving and beloved child to run into the room where they are and say, Daddy, will you go outside and throw the ball with me? Daddy, will you come and sit down and have a tea party with me? Mama, will you help me with this thing I'm trying to learn how to do? For exactly the same reason, for exactly the same reason that any parent would want that, God desires and welcomes us to come right into His presence through our prayers to enjoy Him forever. You know? Now, you have to come tonight to get this. This is just thrown in for free because this is what I'm preaching tonight. As far as I can tell, there's only one reason why God created everything. Do you know what it was? Because He wants many sons to come to glory. By the way, that includes you girls. He wants many son. He wants to bring many sons to glory. What is it? He has invited us to come and share the joy that He Himself, between the three members of the Trinity, has known for all of eternity. I, I, I don't want to be I don't want to be flippant about this, but it's almost as if God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit looked at us, looked at each other, and said, "You know, this is pretty good. What we got here? I wonder if we could get some more. I wonder if we could get some more people to come in." We're invited to come in. We're invited to enjoy Him. We're invited to, to glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. And that's what your prayers are for. That's what your prayers are for. Let me just suggest to you that prayer is not a small thing. Prayer is not a small thing. Prayer is a very central thing. One of the things we find from this is that uh, there are at least three things, three reasons I can think of why prayer ought to become central in our lives instead of peripheral to our lives. Because I wonder, I really do wonder, if we realize just how precious our prayers are to God. So let me suggest three things that come from that truth of the centrality of our prayers. Number one, prayers are supernatural in nature. Prayers are supernatural in nature. When you come to Him in prayer, you are talking to the foundation of all being, You're talking to the Almighty One who has all power. You're talking to the One who has all wisdom. You're talking to the One who is everywhere present. You're talking to the One who can actually do what is right. And for you and I to come into His presence and to speak to the One who has the ability and the willingness to always do what is right is a supernatural thing that can affect our world in a powerful way. I just want to suggest to you that it wasn't an accident that George Mueller was able to care for 10,000 orphans during his lifetime. That was not just something that just happened to happen. It happened because George Mueller prayed. Our prayers affect life on planet Earth. I am absolutely convinced that one of the problems we have in America today is not that we don't have prayer in our schools it's that we don't have prayer in our churches. We don't have prayer in our churches. You know, to, to get, it, it's, it's almost, it's almost, I don't want to be offensive and I don't want to be rude, but to, to entice people to come to a prayer meeting, uh, you, you almost have to promise them free love and nickel beer. Now that was a joke. You can come to our prayer meetings, you're not going to find free love and nickel beer at our prayer meetings. You're not. You're not. But this is, but you know, because pr- prayer has become so peripheral to us, 
And, and I think that one of the reasons that, uh, that our society, frankly, is, uh, is in the mess that it's in is because we have abandoned prayer as a church. The church in America has abandoned prayer. We, we really don't believe in this anymore. And so I think that one of the things we need to do is to realize that when we're engaged in this, we're engaged in a supernatural business. This is supernatural. It really does change the world. I believe it. I've seen it happen. You know, we, we have the privilege. One of the things that our elders will do here at Bible Fellowship Church is we will pray over you and anoint you with oil. Did you know that we do that? This is part of what we do. If, if you come to us and you say, you know, I am really sick. I've got this problem. And uh, could you pray over? I, I think I read something in the book of James about being prayed over and anointed. Would you, would you do that? We will do that for you. We quite often will do it between services. You, you ever see the elders? You ever see me running around the fellowship hall grabbing elders and dragging them out with a donut and a cup of coffee in their hand? <laughs> do you know what we're doing? We're going back to Pastor Todd's office to pray for the sick. Let me tell you something. We have seen some remarkable things happen because we obeyed the Lord. I can tell you of at least one and possibly two instances where somebody was instantaneously healed of a fatal disease. And that has happened because we prayed. I can also tell you that we prayed over some people who weren't healed at all and they went home to glory because that's what God wanted to do for them. But I can also tell you that for most of the people we pray for, they do recover It's usually through a long process that God uses doctors to do it, but they do recover. Most of the people we pray for are healed. Prayer is real, and it changes things. Number one, prayer is supernatural in nature. If prayer is supernatural in nature, this is your opportunity to get in on what God is doing on earth. Second thing, it pleases God when we pray. It pleases God when we pray. What do you have? You ever, you know, <laughs> we live in, a, in an affluent generation, don't we? I have two sons, and you know what I can tell you about those boys? They don't need anything I can give them. What do you give to the man who needs, who's got everything? You ever scratch your head at Christmas time? Say, what do I give to Uncle Harry? You know, what do I give to Uncle Buck or whatever? I, I, they got everything. What do I give to them? What do you give to the man who's got everything? If you think it's tough figuring out what to do with, with your uncle at Christmas time, figure out what to give to God, because he really does have everything, right? What do you give to the one who's got everything? You give him the one thing that he desires, your presence. You give him your presence in worship. You give him your presence in prayer. He loves it when we come into his presence There's nothing that really you can give God except worship, and prayer is worship. It pleases God when we pray. Let me give you a third reason why this is significant. The third reason is that prayer is not a secondary thing. It's a primary thing in the Christian life. Prayer is not a secondary thing. It's a primary thing in the Christian life. We are designed, and God has so designed His world, that prayer has to be part of our lives in order for us to be able to manage life on planet Earth. This is how we get the help that we need. Now, it follows from this that both private prayer and common prayer are important, are of the highest importance to our lives. Let me explain the difference in this. Private prayer is what you do in private. I hope you have a time every day when it's just you and your father getting together. Let me tell you what it'll do for you. You better be careful. If you haven't been doing that and suddenly you start 
you better strap on your seatbelt because God will absolutely honor that and begin to change your life. Do you know why I'm standing in a pulpit in front of you today? (laughs) Because 30 years ago, I told God, I'm going to pray for five minutes a day. And here I stand today. You know why? Because he takes it seriously. And he says, well, if you'll do that, then I'll lead you into deeper and deeper and more and more and more. And God will change your life. Private prayer is our time that we can grow in our relationship with God. Relationships grow and change because we spend time together. There's a lady sitting right there that I've been married to for 43 years. Do you know when we got married, we thought we knew each other? That lasted for about a day. 43 years later, we know each other. I mean, we know each other really, really well. We can almost finish each other's sentences. Have you gotten to that point in life where you can complete the sentences of your mate? You know, and I hate to tell you this, it gets even worse. Some of us begin to physically look like our mate. She's in real trouble if that ever happens, right? But, but, but when you spend time together, relationships develop by spending time together. You know, th- this is the way relationships develop. If you want to develop your relationship with God, if you want to grow, if you want Him to become personal to you, look, there's no other way to get around it. You just have to spend time with Him. And one of the ways we spend time with Him is by having healthy, vital prayer lines. Secondly, our faith grows stronger when we ask and receive. Our faith grows stronger when we ask and receive. If you're asking God to do something for you, and then he does it, let me tell you what happens to your faith level. It goes from here to here. It really does. Let me tell you about Phyllis Hall's mother, right? Phyllis Hall, who we're going to have her service on Tuesday, came to me right after I came back on staff, which has almost been nine years ago now. And she said, my mother rejects the Lord. She's in Fairway Pines over here. Would you go visit my mother? So I went and visited her mother, Doris Austin, every week for I don't know how many years, four years maybe, five years. And when I first started going in to visit Doris, uh, she didn't want me to talk to her about the things of the Lord. She said to me flat out, you're not going to get me. (laughs) That was what she said. She said, you're not going to get me. I said, it's all right with me, but can I come and just be friends with you every week? Yep, you can do that. Don't, you know, so I bring my Bible, wouldn't, wouldn't open my Bible. You know, we just have, we chat up. I found out about her history and all that stuff. She found out about mine. After I'd been with her for a while, I said, uh, you know, Doris, can I just read you a little scripture? Well, I guess that would be all right. So she started letting me read her a little scripture. So I would read her a little scripture. And then I said, can I pray for you? Yeah, I guess that would be all right. So I started praying for her, and then I got to where I was on my knees in front of her praying for her, and then I got her by the hand, you know, and this all develops over over months and months. And then she came to a concert at Bible Fellowship Church where Dennis Agajanian presented the gospel, and when he gave the invitation, she went, (laughs) and Phyllis was peeking, and she saw it. She didn't live much longer after that. I went to visit her in the hospice house two or three days before she died, and you know what she told me? She said, well, you got me. <laughs> now, let me tell you what. How did, how did that happen? 
It happened because Phyllis Hall prayed for her mother for 40 or 50 years. It happened because I got on my knees and held her by the hand and prayed for her. What happens? Miracles happen when you pray. Miracles happen when you pray. It really does. And do you know what that did for my faith and for Phyllis Hall's faith? Right? Superman. You ever see Superman? Right? Just like that. Just like that. When God answers our prayers, our faith level goes from here to here to here to here. It just builds our faith. This is what private prayer is for. Let me talk to you just briefly about common prayer. I've got to get you over there to donuts at some point today. Look at your neighbor and say amen. All right. Common prayer is our contribution to the spiritual health of our church. Common prayer is when we get together. Common prayer is what we do on Sunday morning at 8.30 back in this room. And on Wednesday evening at 6.15 in this room. And Thursday morning at 6.30 in the fellowship hall. And once a month at the source uh, over in the, the classroom. That's when God's people get together to pray. These are our prayer opportunities, our opportunities for common prayer here. Common prayer contributes to the spiritual health of the church. Let me just suggest some ways that praying together strengthens the church. First of all, we learn how to pray by listening to others we respect pray. Did you know that you know how to pray because you listen to somebody else pray? That's how that's how it happens. Remember? When you were a new Christian, maybe you were a little little tyker or or maybe an adult when you came to the Lord and you got into a prayer meeting and people were saying these strange things and you thought, "Man, I'll never be able to do that." Today you're one of those people saying those strange things. How did that happen? It happened because you had the opportunity to listen to other people pray. I just want to suggest to you that there has to be a place in the church for all ages to be together in prayer. How are our children going to learn how to pray unless they're together with us when we pray in common? How are our new believers going to learn how to pray unless we gather together, unless we're in the same room together and we can learn from each other? So one of the reasons why we need to gather together is that we learn how to pray that way. Secondly, God moves His hand in specially encouraging ways when His people pray together. God moves His hand in especially encouraging ways when we get together and pray together. So, here's my thing today. Here's what I want. What I'm saying today is just a plea for private prayer and for common prayer among God's people. I wonder how you're prepared to act on these truths. Let me just assure you that if you act on these truths, you'll be blessed if you do. You got time for one more story? I'll tell you one more prayer story. Tell you the story of a young man by the name of Jim. He, Jim had been a basketball player. He had been, at, uh, he had been first at the Naval Academy and then later uh, at the University of Connecticut, had played on some championship teams. Uh, he was a kind of an athletic kind of guy. Uh, he, he married a lady who her father was an overseer of seven small churches. One of them, one of these churches, was in a large uh, northeastern city of the United States. And so uh, Jim had no theological preparation for pastorate. He had no uh, seminary, didn't have a Bible course that I know of at all. And his father-in-law came to him one day and said, Jim, I believe that you're supposed to be the pastor of this church in downtown this place. And Jim, you know, what do you say when your father-in-law comes and says, you're going to be the pastor? Well, if you're a wise man, you say, okay. 
So Jim became the pastor of this church, a very struggling church. He gets down there, there's a little group of people, 25 people in this urban church uh, in, a, in an underprivileged neighborhood. And so he is now going to pastor these people. And uh, they don't have a building, and they don't have uh, a congregation that, that is it. And, and he's got no preparation to preach. He said, he said, when I first began preaching, my sermons were so bad that I fell asleep. <laughs> yeah. He's preaching one night, and they had these old church pews that somebody had given them, and there's a whole, the front row is full of, of five or six people, and suddenly in the middle of his sermon, the pew collapsed and fell on the floor. And he said he was so startled, he didn't know what to do about it. He said, just move to another place and kept preaching. Needless to say, it wasn't going well. And he came to the point of a nervous breakdown. He was just right on the edge. And somebody said, Jim, you've got to get out of here and take a vacation. So they sent him to Tampa. They said, go to Tampa for two weeks. Just sit in the sunlight of Florida and, and chill out. Here's some money. You can go on one of those fishing boats out in the Gulf. So this young man found himself sitting on the back end of a fishing boat in the, in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Tampa, weeping. He went to the back of the boat because everybody else was fishing from the front. He didn't want to fish. He just sat there weeping. He was weeping because of what was going on, and he didn't know how to fix it. And the Lord said to him, Jim, if you will teach my people how to pray, I will make sure that you never lack the funds you need for your church, and I will make sure that you never have a building big enough to fit in all the people that I'll send to you. And today, the Brooklyn Tabernacle is that ministry. Bobby Graham, one of our own, goes up to the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Did you know that Bobby goes to the Brooklyn Tabernacle? She's got a son who lives in New York. She goes to visit him every summer. One of the highlights of her summer is to go to the prayer meeting on Tuesday night. Do you know what it's like to go to the prayer meeting at the Brooklyn Tabernacle? She said, first of all, you have to get there two hours early if you want to get a seat. She said, people are lined up outside waiting for them to unlock the door two hours early. You go in, you put your Bible on a seat, you go out and have supper, you come back, there's your Bible, there's your seat. She says, the place is packed on a Tuesday night. Let me tell you something. If we will learn this secret, if we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word, we will never lack the funds we need for this church, I firmly believe, and we will never have a building that's big enough to hold all the people that God. Now, I know God gave that promise to Jim Cimbala, but I'm going to tell you something. I believe God is faithful, and I believe when his people are serious about prayer that God will be faithful. So my encouragement for you today is let's give ourselves to prayer. Let's devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word, and let's watch our faith take steps like this as we see how God will respond. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We know everybody's not George Mueller, and we know everybody's not Jim Cimbala. But we also know that you never change, that you're always the same. And we know that we have exactly the same God as George Mueller, and we have exactly the same God as Jim Cimbala. So why not us? Lord, uh, help us to grow in our prayer lives. Help us to be people who move prayer from the edge of our life to the center of our lives. We believe you'll honor that. We believe you already are honoring that, even here at our church. We see signs already that you're honoring this at Bible Fellowship. So, 
Encourage our hearts in the ministry of prayer, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. There's Bobby Graham right back there.